You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, the podcast for marketing professionals in higher education. Join us every week as we talk to the industry's greatest minds in student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where marketing in higher ed is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. My name is Troy Singer, and I partner and co-host this with Bart Kaler, where each week we are having conversations with higher ed marketers that we admire, creating conversations that we hope you can benefit and learn from. Today, we talk to Kyle Campbell, who is the founder of Education Marketer. If you are on LinkedIn, he is someone that may have come across your feed. He is a deep thinker, but he's a deep thinker that conveys his ideas in very entertaining and wonderful ways. And today we talk to him about having an audience first marketing focus, and he makes his case in wonderful ways. Yeah, Troy. I think uh, Kyle's such a great guest, and, and I discovered Kyle, or maybe he discovered me, through LinkedIn, um, through our content. We, we share a common passion for higher ed marketing. Um, he does it in the UK, across the pond, and I do it here in the US. But um, there's a, so many similarities in the way that Generation Z uh, is, you know, the way they respond all around the world. And so a lot of what we talk today about is, you know, the audience first marketing in higher ed. And he, he kind of tells some really good stories and has some really good practical advice for schools of all sizes. I agree. Here's our conversation with Kyle Campbell. Kyle, before we get into the subject of your expertise and what we'll be talking about today, audience first marketing for higher ed, we would like for you to help us start out our conversation by sharing something that you've recently learned that you would deem interesting or fun. Yeah, I mean, I learned recently that the education providers have invested $2.5 billion into search advertising. <laughs> which is a crazy number um oh and you know I, I i reacted so strongly to it that i even felt compelled to write a linkedin post about it but i think it sets us up quite nicely for the conversation today because if you look at that as a proportion of spend on various other channels and different marketing initiatives it's way over indexed and i think it highlights uh, a lot of issues that we'll probably pick up today that sets up a perfect foundation for our conversation so Kyle Campbell, he's the founder of Education Marketer. If you would give us a brief description of yourself and the work that you do at Education Marketer. My business is, is three years old and I set it up because I noticed there was a bit of a gap in how uh, people like myself, education marketers, were, were learning about their sector and uh, emerging news in the digital content and, and media space. But most importantly, how it applies to what we do day to day and if I cast my mind back to, to when I was working you know, university side um, a lot of my own personal development was scrapped together from pieces I, I read on blogs or short courses I did and I remember feeling one day that it was all very disjointed and I was always having to retrospectively apply the the education marketing lens so I took that um, and I created a, a business that 
well, the goal of it is to help people pull all that stuff together in a way that's meaningful to them. So, you know, I have a, a community where we, we, we gather every month and talk to each other on and off between that about the, the emerging trends that are happening. But we always do it in a way that's immersive. Uh, so we don't just pick up our education sometimes. Um, we have the opportunity to always be learning and always connected. And if you think about how we learn professionally, this is this is what we do. So. I wanted to reflect that for um, the higher ed industry and, and give people that opportunity. And that's, uh, you know, the motivation behind why I do what I do. Well, following you is not only informational, but it's also entertaining. And that's the reason why we're here today, because you do an excellent job of giving great content in a very entertaining way. One of the things that attracted us to you is the thought of audience-first marketing for higher ed. This is a passion of yours, something that you speak a lot about. If you could introduce yeah. our listeners to that concept and what it means to you. In higher ed, we, we focus on content. I mean, the danger is we focus on content as an asset. And I, and I think I see this time and time again at conferences. Like we talk about, I don't know, content archetypes or you know, how to measure content and things like that. And that's fine, it, it's required. But in the reality, the content isn't the asset, isn't the content isn't the valuable thing, because if no one looks at your content, shares with shares it, engages with it, then it doesn't matter how good it is. Right. So the value is really in in the audience. And the trouble is we don't normally have people in higher education marketing teams who are responsible for audience growth across multiple platforms. And what I mean by that is you won't have someone who goes, right, our audience is interested in this. We can tell from our audiences on this platform, say YouTube, for example, what this is added in terms of meaningful value to recruitment pipeline, you know, how we're generating interest in that respect. We're all focused on the one-off campaign, for instance. So, you know, recruitment sort of lends on, um, we run campaigns at key points throughout the year. You know, we do a lot of activity, it's very focused, we generate leads, and then we convert those leads. That's a very expensive way of doing things. You're essentially going out to the market and buying your audience every time. So what I'm proposing is we take some of these channels, like our YouTube, like our TikTok, and we properly invest in growing the audience and building our own private pipelines. And sure, you still need to spend money on search, paid media and things, but if you have your own audience, you know, you've got that owned channel and, it, and it's yours to do what, what you, you want with. The content isn't the asset, the audience is. I love that, Kyle. It reminds me of some of the uh, conversations that we've had with previous guests. I'm thinking of uh, Troy, I'm thinking of Jay Bear. Uh, he talked a lot about, you know, establishing your own audience because, I mean, you're right, Kyle. I mean, with $2.5 billion being spent in, in search, uh, you know, search pay-per-click advertising, it's going to it's going to change. I mean, you know, there's there's the cookie cliff coming, you know, uh, you know, Troy and I talked with Ring Digital about that. There's a lot of things that are going to change and we've got to shift the way that we're doing because it, it, it's going to it's going to be a repeat of 10 years ago when everybody was like nobody knew what Facebook was, nobody knew what was going on. We all scrambled to try to figure it out and then we've become addicted to this new thing. And so, uh, you know, it also reminds me of a quote that I heard recently from uh, Gary Vaynerchuk or Gary V, you know, a very popular marketer. And he basically says, now, if you truly understand how marketing works today, 
you know there is no individual six-month campaign. So it gets to back what to what you were saying there. There's, there's no campaign. There's only a, the 365-day campaign during which you produce new content daily. I love that because I think it's the idea of you have to produce content. And in the, in the last episode we had, if you haven't listened to Anne Hanley, you know, she really kind of talks a lot about the idea of, of content, you know, what the importance of content and the fact that, you know, we don't have to say, well, I can't do content because I only have one copywriter and they're busy writing the alumni newsletter. Well, the idea is, is that we all can become copywriters. We can all write and we can all produce content. We have to get into that mindset. So love what you're saying there. And, and being audience first is, is great. So how do, you, how do you think that, I mean, schools are probably listening to this and saying, you know, hey, Kyle, that's a great idea. You know, Bart, that's a great idea. But, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm busy writing the alumni con- newsletter. I'm busy, you know, uh, doing this. I'm busy doing that. I don't have time to figure out how to build an audience. I j- it's just easier for me just to, you know, run the credit card through Google each month and just keep them coming in. Tell me about that. It is easier, isn't it? But, you know, nothing rewarded in the long term you know, right. should should be easy, right? Um, so I think there's a couple ways to think about this. And you know, I'd like to emphasize, I'm not saying you turn off spending on, you know, the various channels sure. you've got going. Sure. I, think there's, I think there's definitely room to set, set up a different stream. And I think a lot of it has to do with attribution as well. Um, so for instance, with the majority of CRMs, or at least the people I consult with, um, you know, they say they're very good at capturing information around where traffic comes from, lead source, right? And most commonly you'll see um, a school highlights that a lot of their traffic comes from organic search, which you would think is pretty standard. But there's no reporting or analysis around what drives that intent. Okay, so this is like a big, like dark area that we don't understand. And, you know, surprise where a lot of the marketing journey actually takes place so a good first step to go our heads around this isn't necessarily like building a new content team and doing all that sort of thing although that does come into it um, I think it's understanding how students discover your university you know I, I regularly consult with clients and as part of that I, I interview students I do it every time because the qualitative insights I get from them is just eye-opening and I was talking with a bunch of students the other day and they're saying they discovered the university mainly through conversations with teachers influences in, in the high school environment now universities aren't very optimized around that um but from those conversations say if half your students discover you that way and if you look and think oh wow we're actually spending lots of marketing on like acquisition through search well that's just balanced isn't it so you know maybe one of the solutions there in that particular example would be to support recruitment teams who go into these environments with a content program perhaps it's a uh, a magazine for instance i know that sounds very analog but this is a you know print is going out of fashion so you should probably do more of it because other people are cancelling their programs so you stand out as a result right. right Um, so how about a publication for students in that environment? You know, they can pick it up. They can look at, you know, all those questions they have around university searches. You can put your university in that space. So, you know, attribution is a a main thing. Let's talk about this. Um, so if we look at attribution right now, we're just capturing things that our CRM tells us, like they clicked on an ad. Um, but actually a really good way to look at it is if you added, say another field on your inquiry forms. Um, for instance, how do students hear about you? Universities don't typically ask this when they sign up. People, students sign up for an open day, open house, whatever it is. They just look at the, the CRM and see it comes from an ad. 
But if you actually ask for the qualitative stuff when people sign up to attend an event at your university, you get a sense of how they discover you. So students might mention, oh, I watched a YouTube video. I had a great chat with um, a lecturer or whatever it was. But we don't capture that right now. And that's really the first step to building, well, proving that the stuff you're doing is working. Because right now, people are really bad at, at measuring the content. Yeah, I think that's, I think you're exactly right. I think that, you know, it's, there's, there is so much content. And I think sometimes marketers miss what is truly going out as content, you know, so that, I mean, let's say that we've got a depart- departmental page, or there's a, you know, I've got a school where there's a professor that goes out and, and teaches, you know, does an entrepreneurial boot camp for grade school kids or high school kids. And, you know, that's content that's going out. And and one of the things that I think is important sometimes is, is really trying to make sure that, you know, you understand where all that content is going, you know, whether it's departmental level, whether it's, you know, officially coming out of the marketing department, mm-hmm. but being able to then, you know, Start working on that and, and then, as you said, put attributions toward that so that you can gain that audience and have that audience insight. I know that you've got in our pre-conversation that you had talked about some examples from you know full sale and MIT and a few other ones that yeah. that you you know think are are kind of good examples of this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So when we look at social media channels in in schools, they tend to be structured around um, departmental functions. So you might have a an engineering school, for instance. And they typically have Twitter, Facebook, whatever those channels are. But actually, what I'm seeing now from from universities is understanding that really we should be building these properties and these channels around subjects, area, expertise and niche understanding of a a topic. And some great examples include um, schools like Full Sail. So Full Sail is a gaming university. It's got a very strong niche. Um, But what they do is they set up a Twitch channel, but it's dedicated to educating young people about working in in the games industry. Um, They've even hired a course director who was once a a Twitch streamer. So the whole thing links up. He runs the channel. There's 17,000 subscribers and they run a regular education show that helps young people understand the challenges, the opportunities in the games industry plus showcase all the work that the students are doing at the institution. It's a wonderful example of how you can build a subscriber-based pipeline and derive value from that. If you wanted something a bit more short-term and simpler to set up, um, lots of universities now are getting into creator partnerships. And I don't just mean using our own students necessarily, just to share a bit of content about the university. I've seen some universities really have a strategic lens to this so there's a great university called um, anglo-american university it's based in prague and they have uh, a relationship with uh, a student of theirs she's also a creator Um, she has a ridiculous number of followers on tiktok and she actually drives applications to the university and the university has attribution set up where they can track how many so i think last year she drove 63 applications to the university (laughs) and they were three times more likely to convert than any other marketing channel so this is the compelling stuff right that people need to hear it's not just sharing content and raising profile and all that loose stuff these relationships these creators these 
Um, audience builders are driving real value. And, and these are the conversations you want to be having as a marketing team. And this is where the fun stuff is as well. Who wants to just drop $50,000 on a, a Google campaign? Where's the fun in that? Right. And, and, I, and I love what you're saying there, Kyle, because I think that... Um, you know, I, sometimes, and, and I know this happens to you, I'll be talking with clients or, or prospective clients, and I'll mention Twitch or I'll mention influencers or I'll ask, you know, who is the most, who has the most followers of, of anybody on your campus? And I get this deer in the headlights look. It's it's like, uh, Twitch, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and what do you mean by followers? Are you talking about Facebook? And and I think that's part of what we need to do is really educate not only ourselves, you know, as, as higher ed marketers, and, and, you know, I think that you made a really good comment earlier. I mean, this is a, a, a lot of people tell me this is kind of their professional development each week. And, and so we've got we've to educate ourselves, but more importantly, we have to educate those people that are in leadership. We've got to educate the administration. And I think the most effective um, schools that I see that are starting to, you know, turn turn the ship sometimes are those schools that, you know, their president decides that, hey, I'm going to get involved in, in uh, social media. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really lean into this. And, uh, you know, we, we had, uh, you know, Walter Kimbrough on when he was president from Dillard. And, you know, his handle on TikTok was Hip Hop Prez. And, you know, he really leaned into that to really um, utilize, uh, utilize the social channels to be kind of, you know, the way to amplify his presidential voice for a very tiny, small school. But I, but I really think that you're right. I think we've got to really understand these different channels, understand the power behind them. Because, I mean, you know, one of the things, I'll be doing a presentation in a couple of weeks, and, and one of the, I do kind of a quiz at the beginning, and, and it's like a little kahoot that, w- that we use that, uh, that online tool. And it's just fun, but one of my questions, what my questions is, is I have a couple pictures of, you know, the biggest YouTube influencers. And, and I, you know, and I talk about, you know, how much did Mr. Beast make this past year? And, you know, most of the people don't know who Mr. Beast is. And then when, when, when the range is from like $50,000 to, you know, whatever insane amount he's doing, I don't know how many millions of dollars, but, you know, they're always shocked that one, they didn't know who he was. And two, he's making that kind of money on YouTube and that kind of followers. So, but I think it gets back down to maybe what we talked a little bit earlier is this idea of, of really leaning into to niche markets. I mean, you know, the idea that the Anglo-American University in Prague is being able to generate, you know, a great deal of applications through an on through a student influencer, that's very niche. You're going to you're going to pull you're pulling in an, a niche audience because they are based on that. But but I, I think that at least my experience and yours, I mean, the deeper you dive into a niche sometimes, the more influence and more um, success that you can have. Um, you know, and so I just think that that's especially relevant on some of these alumni under 25, the, the, the generation Z and the upcoming generation alpha, we've really got to be able to do that. And so maybe talk to me just for a second before we move on to the next thing about the idea of, you know, how do you think about this, this niche market and, and how do you think that plays out long-term for higher ed? Your example of the, the president who has like a TikTok handle and a lot of this to me, when you talk about Mr. Beast as well. It's this new new movement from the idea of the we, the, the corporation, the group to the individual, right? Um, and that plays out in a number of ways for higher ed and links very nicely with the understanding of niche audiences too. So um, one of the things I often look at with universities is you know, not just the message that the university is, is putting out, but who's saying it. And you know, we might 
um, get onto it a bit later, but I'm sure we will touch on chat GPT at some point. But as content is being commoditized by AI, i.e., you know, content can now be created to a decent standard by a machine, what separates it? It's the person who publishes it, right? And universities have corridors of these people, right? Corridors of thought leaders. And some of the greatest campaigns or examples of like marketing I've seen in recent years, not even campaigns, but great examples of marketing and building a point of view that's compelling in the market has come from companies who build up an individual as part of that business and then puts them out front. Um, it's really common in SaaS now. Um, you know, there's a, there's a company called Refine Labs, and the whole thing is built around the persona of someone called um, Chris Walker. Now, he puts out a consistent point of view. He engages in LinkedIn. He's like full on on this stuff. And I look at this and think, if he can build a business that way by publishing in native channels as an individual and then generate a stupid amount of revenue for his company, higher ed should be all over this because they have the thought leaders. They have the great ideas. Um, but I, most stuff I see of higher ed isn't in that area. Um, and then the closest we get like campaigns that drop and research uh, the piece that we, we talk about, whether it is, but really we should be leaning into the power of our academics and the power of our, you know, even like experts in the marketing team, for instance, you know, in the UK, we've got a few admissions thought leaders who I see fairly regularly on LinkedIn and they're building partnerships. It's the same with recruitment professionals. There's someone at a university in the UK, um, director of recruitment, she has 7,000 followers on LinkedIn and she talks about all kinds of stuff in higher ed and she finds partnerships for that way. She connects with parents that way that, you know, this is the, this is the future. It's not one campaign. It's, it's building up the authority of your, your people, identifying who those thought leaders, you know, internal influences are and really giving them resource, but we've got a long way to go because, you know, there's still that sort of default view as someone's on LinkedIn all day, they're not doing their job when actually that is their, their job, <laughs> exactly. especially doing recruitment or front, front facing role. Uh, but yeah, that message is yet to get across. That's a good point. And I want to kind of stop because we have a lot of listeners that are going to be um, listening to this and they're going to say, okay, Kyle, yeah, that's a great idea. If you're, a, you know, an R1 institution or if you're, you know, a, a great big, you know, state institution here in the States or, or whatever you might, you want to say that because I've got a lot of schools that either you could, you could define them as micro colleges. So, you know, schools that are under a hundred students or they're, you know, smaller, you know, schools that are under a thousand or, or under 3000 students they're gonna say yeah I don't I don't have that but I always argue that you've got you've got one faculty on on staff you've got somebody on on your team that you know is affinity that all the students always you know come back to to see and say hi and do all that you have that you have somebody like that and whatever they do they have authority in that subject and they, with with what they're doing you don't have to have you know everybody has some kind of distinctive and I, and I get so frustrated sometimes where it's like, you know, we're not, we're not the big school. We're not like them. It's, it's this idea that, you know, oh, woe is me. It's just us. That's your distinctive is that you're small. You can do so yeah. many more things than a big school can because you are small. And so I, I just want to kind of take this for a second and elevate the fact, you know, one of the arguments that I always make is that if you choose to, you can be the authority on whatever you want. 
And it's simply the fact of gaining that authority through a channel like LinkedIn or TikTok or wherever you want. If you lean into that totally, go all in, you know, Rob Clark from, you know, that tall family, he's been on the show a couple of times, lean all the way in and publish content about that every day. Guess what? You'll be the authority on that. People will come because the people that like that are going to be drawn to you. And so, sorry, I got on a little bit of my soapbox there and did a little bit of preaching (laughs) and uh, I'll kind of let you back. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind picking up on a few of those. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you've made a great point about the, the smaller school. And if anything, the, the smaller school, because it represents a niche, is probably better positioned to do this stuff. And, um, and if the argument is time and, and things like that, I mean, they don't have the scale to spend these huge budgets, do they, to attract in uh, people that way. So this is a very viable way for, for them to do that. So they've got the advantage of being small they can focus they can be known for one thing um and they can scale that via via channels like like linkedin or whatever platform it is and and you're absolutely right about um becoming the authority on something there's there's no difference between me necessarily than someone else who works in in higher education consultancy but the difference is i share my knowledge every day on a platform so people can take advantage of it you know, this is this is the point. It's yeah, that's for my business, and you can't compare my my setup to like a university as a whole. But right. you can compare it to like a, a niche subject area, um, if you wanted to really be known known for that in in a university, and it works. It takes time, yeah. um, but you yeah. get some fantastic results at the end of it. This is a wonderful conversation. I'm eager to get to the next one, but before I do, I just want to remind our listeners that. There is a way to scale. Both Bart and Kyle are big believers of repurposing content. And if you want to learn how to scale, please reach out to either one of them on LinkedIn. I am tempted to stay here and have them say it here, but (laughs) let's move on to something that I know Kyle is a little bit opinionated on. Gave us a little hint a few seconds ago when he mentioned chat GBT. And the reason I know this is because his opinion has been shared on social media where he was surprised on how a lot of universities aren't embracing this as the way they could and use it as an opportunity. Kyle, could you expand or share with our listeners your opinion on this? Chat GPT, I think, is the the greatest innovation in technology since mobile, since the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And it will change how we think about content just as mobile did. In fairness to higher education, despite a lot of narratives that say this is the end of student agency and all that sort of stuff, I think as a sector, we've reacted largely well. Um, there's a university in the UK, for instance, that's now running classes in chat GPT and helping its students use it as part of their, their assignments and the various things they might need to do in a workplace environment. And in Australia, there's there's three universities that have recently approved um, the use of chat GPT in assessments as long as students declare it. And I think this is a very positive step. Where education is perhaps falling behind and where I think we are uh, damaging ourselves is in the school system. Um, and the default reaction from the school system was to to ban it as, as a tool that students could use to, to improve their experience. Now... I don't know about you, but this reminds me of a lot of when um, Airbnb was introduced. The hotel industry went mad. Um, They tried to get it banned. They went to government. 
Um, they failed to do that. Now Airbnb is the, the biggest provider in the space and the hotel industry uses it to advertise their properties. It was the same with Uber. Uber came, uh, people, um, taxi companies said, we don't want it. They went to government, they failed. Now Uber is the biggest provider. What I don't want to happen is education makes the same mistake. And let's not forget, they've done it once before as well. I'm a millennial. I remember Google becoming a thing. Um, and I remember uproar from education providers at the time saying, you can't use this to complete homework. You can't use this to get <laughs> translations. Look at where we are now. I think people will get over it eventually. But the opportunity for me is it's quite simple. Rather than banning this thing and making students go back to handwritten essays, which is ludicrous, we should just be teaching them how to use it. I look back to my education, how it failed me in the technology space. In classes, we were taught how to use Microsoft Word, Microsoft PowerPoint. We should have been taught how to build websites. Um, and it's the same with AI. Rather than doing the basics, we should be looking at how AI can enhance careers, enhance learnings. They're going to use it anyway. Right? We might as well show them how to use it responsibly, right? right. Um, so yeah, I am quite opinionated on it because I don't want a generation to miss out on all these tools because when they get to the workplace they will be ill prepared and it's our responsibility as education educators to make them prepared for the world they're about to step into not make it harder for them yeah and and i think it's always been that way i mean anytime that we look at any kind of technology automation i mean i remember growing up in the in the 70s and 80s and and you know i grew up in a in a blue collar town my 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 father was a, you know factory worker and and you know the idea of robots were going to take over all the jobs. You know the idea that they were going to come in and and you know and and that was a, a you know a valid fear. And um, but I think that the what we've discovered is is that you know I think robots have you know if you want to call that technology has been something that was comes alongside. It becomes another implement that we use. It's another tool. So it's no different than you know when when uh, you know we we transition from horsepower to you know steam engines or tractors i mean it became a, a an augmentation of what we were doing that gave us more strength to do more i mean it, it kind of took the human experience and the human strength and amplified it through technology that's what technology's always done across the millennial and i think the idea of of not recognizing it as a as a supplemental tool that we can use um, and I think that you're right. We've got to teach how to use those tools. We have to also embrace those tools and use them ourselves because, I mean, chat GPT and, and AI like that, and that was part of what we talked with Anne last week about as well, is the idea that, you know, we can't run away from it and think it's going to take our jobs. We have to realize that it's a tool that can enhance our jobs, and how can we then utilize this tool to to do our jobs even better. How can, I mean, if I can only write one blog post a day, but if I utilize ChatGPT as a tool to help me draft 10 blog posts and I become an editor for, for an AI and, and I'm utilizing that AI as part of my tool chest, that just changes things and, and allows me to you know, amplify my ability to get content out. That, that's part of what I'm thinking. What, what's your thought on that, Kyle? If you want to look at the like the education example, if if a task can be completed, an assignment can be completed by simply just using AI, the assignment itself probably isn't fit for purpose. So we shouldn't be trying to right. ban these, these tools. We should be looking at how the, their their presence affects the, the way we approach tasks and approach education. And you're absolutely right with the 
you know, the content creation process. And if anything, it, it automates the most basic level of content out of the system. So I, I welcome this as a content creator because I don't know about you, Bart, but I'm fed up with going into LinkedIn and seeing like life affirming quotes, which are overly simplistic <laughs> on how to talk about leadership. Well, ChatGPT is going to rip all that stuff out of the ecosystem because anyone can do all that stuff now. I can generate a leadership post on LinkedIn in five seconds. I've never published one. Right. Um, but we use ChatGPT to build and get rid of those basic processes to free up more creative forms of, it, of expression. So I welcome this technology and I think it's going to usher us into a new age of, of content. If our listeners don't really have a good understanding of what ChatGPT is or, or what I would like to call, you know, the artificial intelligence engines in a little bit broader standpoint, a really good way to learn about this, I mean, and I know you do this, Kyle, every time something new comes on, I just go and I play with it. That's the best way to learn. And so if you just go to chat.openai.com, you can sign up for a free account. Um, it's been really busy lately, so you might have to wait a day or two to be able to get onto the platform. But you can start playing with it and and you know suggesting content and asking questions and and have different things, and that'll give you a better idea of what it is and and, and what that's all about. So yeah, that's that's a really good point. Kyle would also like for you to share with our listeners who might not follow you your thoughts on what the creator economy is and how it disrupts higher ed. So with the creator economy, there's two main disruptors for me. Um, firstly, is the type of content that young people are consuming. And secondly, it's the content that's produced as a um, competitor to, to education in general, higher education in general. Um, so let's start with the, the competition first. Um, to give you an example, I subscribe to a lot of paid newsletters. Um, my my favourite is a, is a newsletter called Category Pirates. It's a business-orientated newsletter. I pay $200 a year for it. And I can tell you, and I'll go on record and to say that it's more valuable to me than a $5,000 qualification is to me um, and that was my CIM in level six marketing this is a common qualification that people take in the UK um, and it's a useful qualification don't get me wrong but actually from this newsletter I, I get 10,000 words a week on a deep business topic typically around category design is written in an engaging entertaining way I've written, I've read books by the authors also behind the newsletter, and I've also spoken with them several times on LinkedIn to explore ideas. This is real value, and it almost feels like where the future of like professional education is going, and it's $200 a year. So that's a massive threat, and this comes out to, of the creator economy because <laughs> all that text is self-published. There's no third-party arbitrator. I'm not spending like X thousand amount of dollars a year on it. It's incredible. Um, and secondly, how, how young people consume content now and their motivations behind creating content. I read a stat earlier in the year and it was, it was crazy really. There was a survey of 30,000 young people across the world and it, it turns out that the most popular career for all of them is they want to be a creator. Um, I think it was something like 45%. Mm -hmm. Now there's a real distinction there between what a creator is and, and an influencer. Okay, so an influencer is someone who typically publishes content in order to get sponsorship and brand deals. But a creator is very different. A creator is someone who's perhaps more uh, smaller scale. They've got a micro audience. They create content for a certain niche. They sell a lot of different services around having created that niche. And a lot of young people are very interested in, in that business model. 
And there's a fascinating study by Adobe that highlights their number one reason to, to do this, to publish content. It isn't to become an influencer, it's to be a business owner. So they want to create businesses off the back of the content that they publish. And that is a real step change, which has really only occurred in the last five to seven years. Cause it used to be, if you're gonna be an influencer, you do the influencer thing, but now young people, entrepreneurial mindsets are looking for ways they can make money off the back of their content in a way that is sustainable and not doesn't necessarily come with all the pressures of, of being an influencer. And really, they, they feel this way because right. that's the content they consume on a daily basis. What is the stat in the States? 95% of teens use YouTube. In the UK, it's, it's slightly less. We're more mm -hmm. um, TikTok orientated for some reason. But this is the dominant media. So naturally, that's what they want to do. Um, it's quite a simple observation, but one that's really characterized how, how I think about this. So, yeah, that's the main disruptors. So if you think about a university, for instance, look at a typical university YouTube channel. Does it reflect the sort of content that the young people are consuming from creators? Probably not. There's a bit of a gap there. So there's a lot of different ways the creator economy disrupts on what students want to do, what they're consuming and um, competition from other independent providers in the space. I've often mentioned, you know, with a few other guests is the idea that, you know, when we look at this, you know, creator economy and, and we look at the creators, you know, one, they're not going to follow a university or a college, TikTok, YouTube, you know, Instagram, whatever you whatever social channel, they're not going to follow it because you're publishing, you know, the upcoming visit days and, you know, the deadlines. I mean, they're going to find that information already. They're not going to follow it because they are interested in seeing, you know, the inspiring quotes on top of, you know, beautiful photos of your campus. They, they are following it because they want to understand what campus is like because they have questions. And, you know, you need to be able to provide answers through your content in those, in those things. And then you also need to do what I call edutainment. You know, you need to educate somebody through an entertaining way. And, you know, they're going to follow you because of that, because a lot of what they're doing already is, you know, and there's a, there's a great um, video that I use in some of my presentations that, you know, Gary Vee was on Drew Barrymore's show, and they were talking about social media. And, you know, the idea of, you know, two aspects of social media, it's the media part where you're, you're scrolling and, and being entertained or using it as escapism or whatever it is. It's, it's like flipping a magazine or, or, you know, reading a newspaper or something. And then there's the social aspect of it when you discover a piece of content, and then you want to start a relationship because of what you learned and the commonalities between those things. And, and, I, and I think that sometimes we, we miss that relationship thing in the way that content can build the relationships because we are building that trusted authority that we talked about earlier. You know, we're also kind of figuring out how to build those relationships to answer the questions. And so I, I think the creator economy is more than just the output of, of content. It's it's a lot of times that you know basis of building the relationship. I think that's how you and I met, Kyle. Is that we we kind of saw each other's content on LinkedIn, you know it it you know started that you know respect. There was a reach out. We reached out. We you know set up a Zoom call. We've had several Zoom calls, and uh, and and here we are. And so um, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, because I think that sometimes we think about it as just a a nineteen eighties model where it's a broadcast model as opposed to the power that it is. If you think about how when social media first entered the market, it was about taking people you met in real life and connecting with them online. But now, and 
certainly the way I use it, I use uh, platforms like LinkedIn to scale ideas, um, make, make connections, build community. And it's the same for a lot of young people as well. Like they, <laughs> I, read a, I read a report the other day and it, it showed that the proportion of Gen Z in, this, in a survey, for instance, they, they made most of their friends online. Um, and this is this is a new, fairly new concept. And I think it's probably ticked over into that in recent years. So maybe don't look at it too too heavily. But yeah, something something is is definitely um, definitely changing here. And on the community angle, I, I just find this fascinating. The big trend of twenty twenty three, and you know, mainly a lot mainly because a lot of people are talking about it, is suddenly people are really interested in setting up communities. And I think we're missing a very important right. point with this. Um, a lot of the chat you see about uh, community in digital marketing and marketing in general looks about uh, looks at creating community in a in a space, i.e., a private chat, a LinkedIn group, inviting people to it. But actually, community is a feeling, and it, it doesn't need to exist in one space. And I think the the creators or the people who use these platforms who who do well understand this. So community is when you have a chat with someone on LinkedIn in a comment, it's when you see people talking um, off the back of a webinar. It could happen anywhere. So the most forward-thinking brands understand this. Uh, they engage with those audiences and those conversations where they occur rather than always trying to push them to one space. Um, the latter can feel mm -hmm. the opposite of community, really. It can, it can feel very pushy. Um, so I think the universities who properly understand how to use things like student reviews. Are they responding to student reviews when they when they come in? Are they facilitating uh, marketing that causes uh, conversations amongst amongst peer groups? There's, there's loads of things you can do to kickstart conversations and, you know, with community and focusing on, you know, scaling ideas and digital channels. I think that's where we need to be rather than pigeonholing people into like a, a private WhatsApp group. Kyle, if you would, we'd like to end our episode by asking you to share advice that you would give to someone that they could implement immediately after hearing it. Of course. In higher ed, we spend a lot of time focusing on our own channels when really today we should be looking at our presence on others' channels. So for instance, with uh, creator marketing, we very much focus on engaging the creator to create a piece of content that is published on our own TikTok channel or our own YouTube channel when really they're the one with the reach, they're the one with the audience. And it doesn't matter where your content is published, what matters is where it's seen. So we should be leaning into that with as uh, much will as we, we can possibly uh, muster. Thank you, Kyle. And for those that do not know, again, Kyle is across the pond. He is a wonderful follow. He also has a LinkedIn Live where he creates these types of conversations regularly. You can follow him on LinkedIn, but if someone would like to reach out to you directly, are there any other ways that they can do so? It sounds a bit old school, but you can go to the website. It's <laughs> educationmarketer.co.uk. That's uh, where you can uh, reach out to me. There's a little form on there you can just fill in. But yeah, just chat with me on LinkedIn. That's uh, where I spend a lot of my time these days. Thank you for your time and wisdom today, Kyle. Before we go, Bart, is there anything that you would like to offer before we end the episode? Yeah, I just want to first say, Kyle, thanks so much for being a part of the show. It's it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on, and um, it's it's been great to to have this conversation. I I think there's been so many things that we've talked about, and and we we had joked before we started recording, we could probably talk for the next six hours about all these different things, and and uh, it's been so much fun. 
to do that and to do this. And so thank you. A couple of things I would just point out. I mean, Kyle's made some really good points about just, you know, the idea of, of really leaning into your content, being able to recognize that content is the, is the fuel. Um, you know, we, we have, we talk so many times about, boy, what could we do? You know, and it's, it's not the idea of creating another campaign. It's the idea of, you know, getting in the discipline of creating content. And I think that, um, Kyle, you know, we could probably talk another hour about, you know, I know that you made a, a, a very, um, a distinct, you know, and disciplined decision to really publish daily on LinkedIn for the last year. And I know that that's really paid off for you. And I think that those are the types of goals and, and thoughts that we need to think about as, as education marketers to be able to kind of start to impact that. It, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, uh, but it's something that if you can be disciplined and start doing it, you're going to see the results on that. So again, thank you, Kyle. It's been a wonderful conversation and love to have you back anytime. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Bart, and thank you, Kyle. The Higher Ed Marketer Podcast is sponsored by Kaler Solutions, an education marketing and branding agency, and by Ring Digital, providing messaging directly to the devices of your customized audiences within higher ed. On behalf of Bart Kaler, I'm Troy Singer. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Higher Ed Marketer. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. The Higher Ed Marketer is a production of Kaler Solutions and Ring Digital in partnership with Westport Studios. Views and opinions expressed by guests on The Higher Ed Marketer are their own and may not reflect the views and opinions of their organization. Know someone who's a mover and a shaker in higher ed marketing? Visit www.higheredmarketerpodcast.com and click on our Contact Us page. We'd love to have you tell us about them. Until next time.